Hi, everybody. I'm Jesus. And I'm Andre. Welcome back to another episode of the Let's Go to the Movies podcast. We have another guest today. Remember, everyone, if you um, if you want the chance to be featured on our future podcasts, you can go to our link in our TikTok and follow us at lgttm.podcast. Um, yeah, today's guest is Erica. Uh, Erica, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Erica. I'm from Vancouver. I go to Queen's University in Ontario. Um, and I like talking about movies, but none of my friends do. So I found a podcast to do it on, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> exactly, that's the thing. So yeah, today we are going to be talking about classic 80s films, ones that most people have seen, I would say. Um, well, one in particular, actually, we're going to be focusing on. And that one in question is one of the well-known ones by John Hughes, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So the, the premise of this movie, in case anybody listening hasn't seen it before, in which case, stop the podcast, go watch it. This is like a cultural essential and then come back to the podcast. Uh, or listen to the podcast, take in what we're saying. And then yeah, and then watch it. <laughs> yeah, with a, a more critical approach. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is about a kid. It's Ferris Bueller. He's in high school and he wants to live life to the fullest. He doesn't think high school is the best use of his time. So he uses or tricks everyone, including his teachers, his parents, by way of um, recordings and uh, contraptions to convince his parents that he's sick. And he monologues it the whole time to the camera. And then you go about him skipping his day of school, grabbing his girlfriend and his best friend. And they go down downtown Chicago and have the best day ever. Meanwhile, his principal and his sister are trying their very, very best to get him caught and get him in trouble, <laughs> while the whole town is freaking out about Ferris be like, being sick and saying, save Ferris, raise money for Ferris, we, we think he's the best, so we want to save him from this minor illness he's having. So it's just a really fun thing to watch, and it's a great time, and you just get to watch like the progression of all the characters, and I think one of the most interesting parts of this movie is the characters, and I have like a whole analysis to go on about at that, so we'll get into that later. Oh, yeah. I think that we'll probably be thinking in the same way. There's like a very popular opinion about a specific character in the movie and like what their importance is to the plot and how it is emphasized throughout. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I believe that you most likely will have notes on this, Erica. So we'll move on to that a little bit later. Um, I'm curious to know, because this is a movie that we've all seen before. Do you guys, if you can remember, do you know when you first saw it and what the impression was at the time? It could be so long ago that it's just not in your mind anymore, but if you can remember. Mm -hmm. I actually, um, I saw it last year because it came out on HBO on like one of those like, oh. uh, like I don't know, no, it wasn't HBO. It was one of those movies that plays like the, it was one of those uh, channels that plays the, uh, like the, oh, like yeah. the order movies, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, there's like, it came out from one of those. Yeah, basically something like that. I, I saw it with my mom, and I really liked the movie. It was a it was a good time. Nice, yeah. What about you, Erica? Do you remember when you first saw this? For this exactly, because I have a very funny story about the first time I watched this movie. So I'm about to expose myself for the sake of your podcast. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I first saw this movie on a day in November or December. Uh, when I, in 2016, I was 15 and I was watching it with my first ever boyfriend and we were together for probably a month or so. Was, we were friends at first. It was all very like cute and new. We went to, we were like in sports together. Our parents were best friends. It was all adorable. And we were watching this movie and in the middle of the movie, he paused it and he kissed me and that was my first kiss. And that was uh, in the middle of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Wow. <laughs> so, what a memory. A core memory. Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off there. Yeah, really. So I have a really... It didn't, luckily, it didn't ruin the movie for me. So That's yeah, it's That's still a, a great movie. But I very funny that you asked that question. Because I was like, God, am I going to have to say this on the podcast? Because... You at least finished <laughs> the movie, right? <laughs> yeah, you didn't have yes, to. Yes, finished the movie. So thank you for giving the answer anyway. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to entertain. There you go. That's great. For myself, honestly, I could not tell you when I first saw this. I know I've seen it more than once, like without including like when I watched it for this episode, but I, for the life of me, would not be able to place when that was. I could have been 14, but 
it's just maybe because I've seen it a handful of times with different people, mm-hmm. it was always kind of the similar experience of utter enjoyment. And I think I remember watching it again after I had watched the Deadpool movie because the end credit scene of Deadpool is like the exact same yeah. as like Ferris Bueller. Yeah. And so once I saw Deadpool, I rewatched Ferris Bueller and I was like, oh my God, I remember I completely this. forgot about that. So that's like the only kind of memory I have surrounding it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it was probably a movie I watched on like some random Saturday afternoon in my like basement, <laughs> which is just wiped from my memory at this point. Brings but... up a really good point of like cultural references to this movie because oh, yeah. I think so many movies have taken like the opening monologue and the character talking to the screen throughout the movie from this movie. And then there's yeah. just so many cultural references to this like the theme song of it i don't know what it's called but everyone knows what i'm talking about yeah exactly oh yeah everyone's line goes to ferris bueller and a couple years ago there was even one of the actors from stranger things they recreated like the running through the houses scene for a domino's ad like it's it's timeless everybody knows everybody knows the the references to this movie Mm -hmm. and it's just so iconic yeah also the um Yeah, the old, like, the teacher dude that was, like, intentionally supposed to be super boring. Oh, the Bueller. That yeah, one? The, yeah, they, um, he was, he was in a bunch of movies and a bunch of ads at the time, too. And then he just had, like, the exact same personality. He was just, like, the same oh, person. And then, yeah, and they just kind of, like, uh, put him in different, these, like, scenarios and stuff for commercials or for other TV shows or for other movies. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, it, it's because of the way he was portrayed in Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. When you were mentioning cultural references, Erica, it's like so true. Like his, when you think of like fourth wall breaks, really, and like narratives that are like in the same scene without cutting to like a voiceover, Ferris Bueller is like one of the earliest ones. Or yeah. that's not, that's completely incorrect, actually. There's definitely movies like one of the, okay, one of the popular ones, right? one of the ones it's that made like, it popular, right? Yeah, it's like the most popular one. Yeah. Did that. And like, I honestly, I wouldn't even, like, have questioned it if somebody told me that, like, the record scratch and then, let me tell you why I got into this situation thing came from Ferris Bueller, but I know it doesn't, but, like, I wouldn't be surprised if that Where did. Where does yeah, that come from? Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Where, oh, God, I would... Probably some, like, probably... sitcom in the 2000s. Oh! Um, but the thing with Ferris Bueller and, like, the fourth wall breaks is Ferris Bueller and his suave and the way people treat him and the, the basically like the whole movie and the timelines that happen you almost like the the monologues are almost not a fourth wall break because everything else happening in the movie is just borderline unbelievable that you're like of course he's talking to the camera and you know it just yeah. so happens that maybe ferris bueller just does that anyways he's just happened to be monologuing in the direction of where the camera is like it's so the fact that the students rally and, and get uh, save Ferris on a water tower and in the newspaper within a matter of hours in one day. You're just like, where is this coming from? How is this happening? So that part isn't even the most unbelievable part of the movie. And that's why it works so well, because you're just like, that's just Ferris, right? Like from the get go, you're like, that's just Ferris. It's just how he is. Yeah. That's that's so true. That's how it all feels. And yeah. It's like if he's telling a story, like if yeah. like if you're just kind of sitting there on the other side, on the other end of him telling a story kind of like makes me feel like in certain plays almost where like characters I can't I couldn't name one but I like kind of remember in the context <laughs> of like seeing plays at my university mm-hmm. like people kind of talking to the characters and then like acknowledging the audience and talking to them in the same motion but like just like because pop from Midsummer's Night Dream and aside they're just like talking yes, directly to the audience yes, exactly that's what I had in my per- yeah that's the, that's the example it feels like the same exact way, especially, okay, I'm not, okay. I can't say what I was gonna say. I mean, I'll save that for later because that's about character stuff. But okay. the fact that you mentioned Puck, that is so ironic with my notes actually. So we'll just put that on to later when we talk about characters. Well, I but, think um, I have, I think this is a great segue, like talking about how unbelievable this movie is, talking into like one of the, talking about one of the characters now and one of the biggest theories that's come out of this movie, that okay, yeah, the uh, the best friend Cameron, the whole thing with Cameron is that he is super depressed, he's the exact opposite of camera, his 
Am- or sorry, the exact opposite of <laughs> Ferris. Yeah. His home life is kind of sucks, and he's super stressed out about everything, super anxious, super nervous, like the exact character foil of Ferris. And the whole thing is that Ferris is going to get his friend Cameron to stop worrying and join him on this amazing leisure day. And this whole leisure day comes to be Cameron's day off. Like, Cameron is the one who needs the day off in this movie. Ferris is super relaxed. He's great. He's going to live his life. But Cameron is the one who is super stressed out and needs to learn to live his life and appreciate his life. Because he, like, straight up wants to die at the beginning of this movie. And it's not, it's not great. So when Ferris gets him to come do all this really fun stuff and let loose and, you know, break his, like, take, or disrespect his father's car that his father loves more than him, you know, this this father figure doesn't even appear in the movie, but he is, like, the main villain against Cameron's story. He's just this over-oppressive figure represented by this car. And Ferris helps Cameron kind of take ownership of that car, take ownership of him and his happiness, And then by the end of the movie, they destroy the car. And, you know, that's Cameron's arc line. But he literally has an arc. That's like the important thing. Yeah, he has has an arc. He has an arc more than Ferris. Ferris has no character development throughout this movie. No, not at all. Cameron does. He's the same the whole time. Like, I think this movie focuses on Ferris, but Ferris is just like the action that's happening. The character development happens about all the other characters in the movie. Like his sister, the principal, Cameron... Uh, even his girlfriend a little bit Sloan. Um, but the, the theory that I want to talk about is a lot of people believe that this whole movie was just a figment of Cameron's imagination. Then mm-hmm. that's yeah. how they got around Chicago so fast that day. And it was really just him imagining, trying to get out of his life. I don't know how much I buy that, but I want to hear your guys' theory. Okay. I have like a lot of intrigue with that theory. Um, I also was, like, reading stuff on it. I heard about it before when I was, like, reading an article yesterday after watching the movie. Um, have either of you... I'm, this is going to kind of spoil a different movie. Have either of you seen Fight Club? I haven't, but I just know the spoiler. I, I have, and it got either, spoiled And I don't want to know me. the spoiler, kind of. Oh, no. Oh, no. You don't, you don't want to know it? Okay, I'm not going to say it. Word, okay. <laughs> um, anyway. But, um, okay, yeah, so I'll reword it uh, let me think back on how i was gonna phrase this um okay yeah so like the thing is like ferris is the main narrative focus he's the narrator of the film but because cameron is like the only person with character depth and like an arc everybody else is like a caricature almost rooney's like a caricature of like an insane principle the parents are caricatures of like coddling like moms and dads yeah but like with cameron oh shit oh man how am i gonna phrase this um, so you just go for it like it's fine just say no, it it's okay it's i'm not i'm i will not do this i've done this to jesus too many times man i got so upset when i got fight club ruined for me because i was watching a yeah, youtube video okay. i was like oh yeah the twist in fight club is and then they did it i'm like what you could at yeah, least put a spoiler alert my guy anyway but yeah this is like it's not at all the exact same. I was just going to use it as like a reference, but I, when you mentioned Puck earlier from A Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck's character as like this trickster and this, I was going to say unreliable narrator, but that's not correct with Puck to some extent, but like he's like this trickster figure. I think that like Ferris embodies what like a trickster god is or I like just took a fair a class on fairy tale literature and film and the trickster trope is like common in so many factors. It's usually maybe an animal of some sorts, but Ferris fits the bill for almost everything because like he's able to get his way no matter what. He's like influencing and coercing every other character to like do his bidding. And because of that, it's like almost feels as though he's not real or he's like just some ethereal being that came in to fuck with this area of like chicago ferris bueller is the cat in the hat and oh my god <laughs> and cameron is the kid the kid we're children that, that he's babysitting yeah exactly oh my god yeah that's, oh man that's yeah. a hot take but i don't disagree yeah. with you cameron it, well cameron in terms of 
the movie, like the god awful movie Cat in the Hat, which it's not god awful. I love that movie. <laughs> Live action He's movie. He's definitely Sally. Yes, with Mike Myers. Yes. Damn, dude. He's Sally. He's not the boy because the boy is like almost Ferris too. That's pretty true. Okay, yeah. So he's he's definitely though like. Maybe slow in that. Okay, yeah, that's that's more correct. Yeah, for sure. But Cameron is definitely like the Sally in this scenario. Yeah. Like super high strung, not wanting to break any rules, wanting to like follow everything to the book because that's what her parents have like forced her to do. But yeah, that is exactly Cameron too. And there's like this specific moment. I'm, I have no idea what it means, honestly. Erica, you might have some insight to it, but when they're in the museum and he's staring at that one painting, there's like, it. the shots stay too long on Cameron for that, for it to not mean anything. But I don't know what it is because he's staring at that little girl in the painting of like the people at like a park on the side of a river and it's just focused on for like a good 20 30 seconds and that's just way too long i know exactly what you're talking about and it's it's really interesting i don't know i don't know if i have any specific theories but like let me let me do some guessing here like it could be that Cameron is just kind of looking at the art and think, and just, you know, that's the, the art is just making him think and showing that he's staring at things for a long time and thinking about his life like that. Or mm-hmm. the specific use of like the child could be like him thinking back to his childhood and thinking about like, look where he's come from then and how he's like, my childhood self would be disappointed in me and how I'm living my life. Like that could be it because I know that like, someone as myself who has experienced like things with like depression and anxiety you look back on your on your childhood self and you're like damn like that's that's not where they would want me to be right now like look where i've ended up that's not what they wanted and um yeah and erica i know you mentioned at at some point that this or actually was it was it was it you andre that um that it could have happened in his imagination right because cameron fry was the one that needed the day off so that's kind of like his way to like uh dissociate from reality something like that right yeah, that's uh, that theory was brought up, and what I was thinking is that him staring at that painting is like a very post like impressionism sort of thing, right? It's this perfect world, like nowhere that you can ever go looks like that. It's just too perfectly laid out. Everybody looks so happy, everything's so pristinely clean, everything else, and like I have a feeling that that's kind of what was represented in, um, in in Cameron's like thought, right? Like okay. this sort of idea. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, the sort of if idea can, that like it's if too perfect. Continue on that idea. You continue on that idea, and you look at them like looking at all the art. The, the scene specifically where all three of them are lined up with their arms crossed, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the at the art. You could take that and extend it to, you know, they're drawing a par- a parallel between this. You know, this movie isn't real. This movie is a isn't an artistic representation of what you know the ideal. Um, young fun middle class white high school boy looks like and this his ideal day and his ideal life you know he's got like as you said andre the caricatures of all the other people that just aren't real Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. that like that would be an interesting an interesting parallel to draw there where they're staring at the art and they look at they're becoming the art they're looking like the art because this whole movie is a a portraiture of what that life might look like but it doesn't actually look like that no one's life ever looks like that yeah that's yeah like the painting everything's just like it's it's so cliche right the mother with her little umbrella and then there's a little girl beside her and then there's that dog playing around and then like they're looking at ducks and stuff with the boats it's just it seems a little too perfect everything everything all of his all of his plans and stuff they got pulled off so easily that's exactly what i was gonna say every moment of maybe oh no they're gonna get caught something's gonna happen mm-hmm. it just doesn't line up mm-hmm. uh rooney looks away from the tv when they're seen at the baseball stadium mm-hmm. his ferris's dad is always looking in the wrong direction when they're near him yeah. everything just never everything is too perfectly timed except for them wrecking like, the ferrari be in this <laughs> yeah that's true but then that's like the whole like well, i don't even know if it's, it's poorly timed because it, it like that's when Cameron finally has his breakthrough, right? And that's when when his like 
mind, his whole belief system comes crashing down. But also it's it's perfectly timed because it was way more likely that the car was going to get an accident in an accident with a teenager driving it in downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. If we're talking yeah. about like, realistically, but it all happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It happens at the very end of the movie, conveniently when Fer- Ferris is done with it, because Ferris runs the whole movie, and it happens simultaneously with Cameron's like emotional breakdown, but build back up into I'm not going to let myself do this anymore, and that's when the car crashes. Exactly. When reality hits them, That's... I guess, right? Yeah, that, exactly. That, yeah. Boom. For sure. Well, literally, a yeah, boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes down and hits the ground. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, I kind of wanted to talk briefly about Rooney, or for however long if we have notes on Rooney. Like, of course, like I said before, I think that he's like a caricature of some type of oppressive authority figures for like a teenager yeah and just because of that understanding that this movie is like based in a reality that is askew to idealist and like askew it's so funny to think about in our reality that a principal would have such a strong obsession with a teenage a teenage boy yeah like, but not for like any creepy, not for any creepy reasons. Like for like, just the fact that like, it's so on his nerves that he's willing to go to this extent <laughs> to like physically harm himself repeatedly. Just for this, just to get to revenge s- on this thing, on this child, right? To, to, to expose him to for who he is. To revenge on a child that literally has done nothing but kind of. Yeah, he's just being him. Class. Yeah, literally. He just hasn't done any like thing that has impeded. Like I've done that before. Rooney's work. Yeah. I, think yes, the, I, I think the thing is that, that Rooney, like Ferris is who Rooney witches. He could be just like super influenced, super suave. All the students listen to him and worship him. And so obviously that's his like midlife crisis. Oh. I wish I was him. Yeah. Cri- um, yeah. point. But the funny thing is, is that you brought up Andre, the uh, hurting himself and like, you know, breaking and entering into a student's house just for this, yeah. like crazy, <laughs> insane, abandoning his job to go do this. If you take, the principal from John Hughes's Breakfast Club the year prior, and add in some elements of Home Alone, the two guys get, bringing yeah. Home Alone, yeah. you get Rooney. Uh, that is, I was thinking about Home Alone the entire time. Two, the little scenes. contraptions that he makes. Yeah, isn't, hold on, is Home Alone also a John Hughes movie? I think it is. Uh, I like, I'm 90% sure that it's an, a John Hughes movie too. Home Alone, gee. I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, come no. on. It's not telling me. Oh, it's, ah, damn it. it's Chris Columbus. Yeah, Chris Columbus. Columbus. No, no, no. John Hughes wrote it. John Hughes wrote it. John Hughes wrote it. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. Perfect. Okay. Oh, it all makes sense makes now. so much sense. It's literally all three of those movies are like caricatures of like the ideal situation for all the main characters. This mischievous kid oh. with these like... These cliche robbers, you know, with the, uh, with the, with the... Who literally would have just killed him, like, right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like they're, they're robbers, but they don't carry guns. That's... Yeah, and the, the persistence that they have to get into this house where you're gonna find, like, yeah. mediocre things to sell. Yeah, pretty much nothing. And... Yeah. Oh, man. That's, Interesting. That's cool. I compl- I knew that John Hughes had something to do with the Home Alone series. I, like, and just the thing with John, like, I read... clearly his name. I sorry, I read today that um, John Hughes wrote this movie in six days. Really? Oh wow! Yeah, there okay. was a writer's strike going on, and the studio said, "Hey, if you want to get this in, you need to do this now before the writer's strike, or else we can't greenlight it." And so he did it in six days. Mm. Oh my goodness! What a beast! Which that's is very amazing because this is this is such a unique concept. It's so cool. And that's why I picked it for, like, this representation of, like, 80s movies. Because it kind of takes, like, the 80s movies branch of exploring the the teen stereotypes and the teen protagonists and technology um, that was going on in that era of, like, oh, maybe, look, the geeks aren't always just the background characters. And kind of moving into more uh, character analysis and different types of people in film. And takes that and goes, no, we're going to make it about a rich entitled middle class white kid with a shit ton of male privilege mm. and yeah and we're it's, just going to give him like all the luck in the world and you're going to like it and we it's all the said complete yes the opposite of like the outsiders yeah exactly 
everything that you see at Ferris Bueller, just think what is not here, and that is the outsiders. Yeah, 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 yeah. kind of, and to some, to, to some regard. extent, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What I like to think though, on a lighter note, instead of like uh, Cameron being the one that's just like spiraling and going into this, uh, this completely like false world that he imagined, I like to think of it as like, uh, like a real life cartoon, basically, right? Oh, you know, like all the writing and stuff with the slapstick comedy, and then with the uh, with the like unfathomable events that happens. The the uh, the principal that's always like the uh, the main process, the antagonist of the entire story. I like to think of it. It's like it's straight up like this could be a really good cartoon. If it was made like that, it would be it, it would be a perfectly fit into that aesthetic like immediately. Counter idea. Go for it. Um, if we talk about like the we're not using the this is Cameron's imagination theory, but going off of your idea of being really unrealistic, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, if we think of Ferris as an unreliable narrator and take it to the point where he's recounting this amazing day, he's exaggerating. I think of him. He's exaggerating. Yeah. Him being a teenage boy mm-hmm. trying to exaggerate how amazing he is, yeah. and how he's skirted all these adults, skirted all the rules, and just you know. I've created the perfect day for my girlfriend and my best friend. Look at all this we've accomplished. And he's exaggerated everything around him and exaggerated himself to seem cool. Like that would fit it better. Because, you know, if think back to a day you had, you're going to go, you're going to skirt over all of the little mishaps or things that go wrong. But you're going to exaggerate all the really fun parts because if you want to seem like you're having the best day ever, you're going to let your brain convince you it was the best day ever, even though most memories are bittersweet. That's that's entirely right. Oh my goodness, yeah. I kind of like threw away the idea of him as an unreliable narrator earlier talking about Puck, but he, he really could be just simple as that. Yeah, that's what I was going for whenever I said that. It was like if like you're in the receiving end of a story, right? Like, um, mm. perfect example, stand-up comedy. All the stories that they have. Oh, yeah. And stuff like that. Like, you, they you seem... never say it really how it was. Yeah, they seem real enough for it to have happened that way, but... Like deep down inside, you know that that's not exactly what happened. Like to some extent, that was kind of exaggerated, but like they do it to a point that it's it's really entertaining and it's like it's just it just comes up with this perfect little narrative that's like amazing. If I met somebody and they came up and told me this story, I'd be like, "Yeah, okay, sure, like, cool. yeah, sounds like a great day, yeah, cool, good for you." Yeah, when it gets to the point of like. Oh yeah, I like attended an entire baseball game, which lasted for hours. Plus, I was like on a float, causing an entire citywide flash mob, mm-hmm. singing a cover of "Twist and Shout." Yeah, just the fact that there was a parade in the middle of a school day too in downtown yeah. Chicago. Yeah, like we don't get any contact. Oh, it was like some German thing, like a German. It was Oktoberfest, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then, like, I crashed a multi-million dollar car. That, too. Oh, my God. There's every little thing. And, like, even, like, if we understand the movie as even when it's outside of Ferris's scenes, like, the scenes with Rooney, the scenes with Genie, if... It's understood then that it's also him constructing that part of the narrative as well. Mm-hmm. So he, Ferris is also equally exaggerating how much his principal hated him and was trying to get him back. Yeah. Yeah. And going off of that, I think like Jeannie is the a, a perfect character of the older sister character. Mm-hmm. Oh, like yeah. she's got Candace from Phineas and Ferb energy. Absolutely. She's, she's sure. constantly, she's constantly getting mad at him. Uh, criticizing him and just wondering why the hell he's so important why he's so special and his parents you know unrealistically are just so coddling of him and so understanding of him and then they're super super harsh on her yeah and Mm -hmm. which is a super common theme in shows in general and but she ends up saving him in the end Mm -hmm. even though he's she's been trying to figure it out all day which is the ultimate like sibling relationship you know you're trying to rat on each other you hate each other but at the end of the day you're going to have their back no matter what, especially against another villain, Bruni, who she probably wants to spite more than she wants to spite Ferris. Yeah. Oh, definitely. The one... Oh, man, I just remembered. One of my favorite characters in this movie, though, is the secretary. 
at the house. Uh, yeah. She's she, so great. She's so funny. I don't, I couldn't for the life of me tell you where I've seen her before, but I know I've seen her play like a similar role. Like with her just super soft, like almost like Midwesternish like type accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, just like super, super friendly and sweet. But then like equally like judgmental towards like the like asshole characters by just when she's just constantly kind of like making jabs at like Rooney, even if it's like super subtly or like trying to like tell him, hey, 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 you're actually talking to the real parent and you're calling him an asshole. Mm-hmm. If you're not talking to Ferris Bueller, like just moments like that. It's just she did it so well. And it's really so funny. I keep forgetting that she's in that movie. So every time I watch it, I'm like so surprised whenever when I realize, oh, damn, this character is from this. <laughs> and oh yeah, there was. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Hazy. Oh, I was going to say that. Yeah, I was just going to bring this up earlier, but I kept forgetting. There's a TV show. About Ferris, Ferris Bueller. It's just called Ferris Bueller. It ran really? from. It looks like episode, season one was 1990 to 1991. There's only 13 episodes. That's the. Oh my god. Yeah. One season, That's 13 episodes. Didn't do very well. IMDb does not like it. So w- someone describes it as sacrilege. Oh my god. Also, it's not <laughs> even. It doesn't look to me like there's any similarities of Jennifer Aniston plays yeah I was just looking at that that's what that oh my goodness and Carla Gugino uh the oh god was she in the mom from Spy Kids why is Spy Kids just like a core memory in every Gen Z's brain like how did that happen um (laughs) it's not even a good movie groundbreaking effects excuse me something like George Lopez in the uh in that giant mechanical suit in Spike Kids 3. That's, that's Shark Boy and Lava Girl. No, it was Spike iconic. Kids Game Over. No, Shark Boy and Lava Girl. No, wait, was, no, because uh, Mr. Mr. Time. He's played Mr. Time. It's the same oh, no, thing. No, no, no. I could, Mr. Electro. I promise you oh. that in Spike oh, Kids Game Over, there was a character almost exactly like that that still used his face. George Lopez is not in. Wait. Uh, yeah, Spike. Don't mess with me right now. Hold on. Spike Kids. No, Spy Kids 3D Game Over does not have George Lopez. That movie has... Hold on, I... It... Sylvester Stallone is the bad guy in Spy Kids 3D Game Over. No, but... It's so much weirder. But... For sure. But... For real? Don't test me on this. I know my Robert Rodriguez lore. Yo, <laughs> hold on. I am... We're like Cheech from Cheech and Chong, isn't it? <laughs> and Danny Trejo, who plays Machete. Yeah, don't test me, dude. I I know my Spy Kids movies. I guess, yeah, like, yeah I Elijah Wood was in it, too. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why Carly Gugino, like, I know that she's, like, also in, like, The Haunting of Hill House, like, the show on Netflix, which I love, too. And she's, like, in a bunch of other movies, but I can only, like, name Spy Kids in, like, initially. Anytime I, like, that her name break gets brought up. But anyway, so she played some random character in Ferris Bueller, the show. So that was just a tangent. Whatever. I got one season. That doesn't seem like it did very well. I don't think you can ever, you know, fix or like do Ferris Bueller again, except in um, in honor of it, like we talked about with all the cultural references to it. Oh, for sure. Like, there's... If they tried to remake it, it just wouldn't work, because I think we had the same discussion last week Jesus like the technology isn't there like now I mean now it's like there to the point of like the movie doesn't make sense yeah because like Ferris would be or like Cameron or Sloan would be like posting stuff online yeah outing themselves like what they're what they're doing yeah the principal would just call the parent's cell phone exactly there you go so it's like just that simple and also like there's no way that uh, the contraption that Ferris built to make it look like he was asleep would ever pass in 2021. Are you guys like plot people or character people? Because I've been getting back into books and like watching movies again, and I feel like a lot of 
books and movies can be characterized into either or yeah. like you know those mm-hmm. super 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 plot heavy ones versus really like character heavy yeah. and the, which one you prefer which one you connect more to can definitely influence how you perceive and how you enjoy movies so thoughts character oh, gosh um I like okay. a deep, diverse character that can go to one side of the spectrum of being, like, one specific type of thing to, like, being another. And, like, a character arc is really, like, the main thing that I that I look for and stuff like that. And if there's a cool character, like, that's going to be a good movie, you know? Like, the superhero movies, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, sure. yeah. I agree. One movie that pops into mind for, like, not plot-focused but character-focused is, like, Lady Bird. Like, does not really have a plot, but if you're into characters and you relate to Lady Bird and you understand her her character arc, then you're going to enjoy the movie, yeah. right? I have to see that still. I hate I hate that I haven't seen it yet. I just know it's really good. I haven't gotten to it. I like it. It's not one of my, like, all-time most amazing ones. I don't really relate to Lady Bird as a character yeah, that much, yeah. but like it's a really cool movie still. Cool, yeah. I'll definitely have to take a look at that. 99% on Rotten Probably Tomatoes. will be on an episode. Damn. Good for you, Greta Gerwig. Um, for myself, honestly, it changes because like I'm getting more and more into um, filmmaking myself and like I've only uh made my own made one short film so far for like my university's film festival but i'm like currently like writing for like another one and like trying to develop that stuff in terms of like making a film character heavy is a lot more fun i would say but like still plot heavy stuff is still super interesting because there's so many things you can do so like i don't really have an answer to that question great question though but it's like all like the different classes I've taken and stuff. Like I took a whole class about film music and that completely takes you in both directions at the same time because there's things called leitmotifs, which are like little snippets of maybe one or two bars of music that you can hear throughout a film and it could either be related to a location, an object, a person. So it helps develop character because you can see, you can expect those plot devices to appear, these characters to appear when you hear that music, but it also like helps carry the character through the film. But at the same time, the music, if you really pay attention and if it's used well, it will shift throughout the film to properly lead to the conclusion of it. And it will change in the way that it has like its composition. It will maybe go, if like, the story starts really dark and it ends happily, the music will follow suit with that. So, but the same thing, if the character, if it's like a character-heavy film, the music should also follow that same way. So, it's, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling, but like the, just every single element in film can aid in both directions. And like, so I don't necessarily have an answer because like I, it changes with every movie I watch. That's you. That makes sense. Absolutely. I wonder if you guys agree on this. I was just trying to think of a movie that's like plot focused rather than character focused. And I think Parasite might be a good example I of that. Seen it. Because I think yeah. there's there's too many characters that you can understand them on a like a deep level. Like obviously they're extremely well fleshed out characters and you care about them and you care about their family, but you don't get like a huge amount of traits uh, on a lot of them. Like you kinda understand their dynamic with each other and kind mm-hmm. of their basic traits. But the plot and what happens in Parasite is what really, like, gets your heart going and what really just, like, blew me away with that movie. For me, I'd uh, say yeah. most, you're de- you're yeah, I'd say most, like, horror films, the ones that aren't, like, slasher films, I feel like those are more story-driven yeah. than character-driven because the characters are, like, one solid person and they really don't have any sort of development. It's just kind of what's happening in the movie. Yeah. Side note, side note, I don't know if you guys want to put this in the episode, but I was listening to the Signs one, and Signs was like oh, the yeah. first horror, like like scary, quote quote, scary movie I mm. watched. Oh, oh my god, so it left such a profound impact on me, and you, they were talking about like the scene where you guys were talking about like how they didn't reveal uh, the character, like what the enemy was until the very end, and I remember mm-hmm. just like watching the scene where the dad's in the cornfield, and all you see is the footstep, like the foot go yeah. into the yeah. corn. Yeah. 
terrifying, etched in my mind forever. Oh and I God. watched that when I was like 12. Oh man, that is so, that's such a good moment. So good. Yeah. And the, the, the water at the end, the only valid criticism I've heard is like, why would the aliens come to a planet that's literally 70% yeah. water? But anyways. That, yeah. Oh man, Laura, if she heard that, she would go on a rant. So thank you. <laughs> like, like, yeah, something like they right were now. desperate. They needed to. I, I mean, there, there's so many reasons why <laughs> you could you could argue oh, one man. way or another. Another film that I thought about that's well, it's I guess the series, but like I really I'm talking about the first one because it's the better of the three. Ocean's Eleven is absolutely plot driven. Yes. Because like the first like half hour or 45 minutes is like assembling the yeah. team you get to know like the tropes that the characters like lead but there isn't any development at all they all kind of stay in the same way matt damon's character has like some type of development because he's like you mean the, the newer one pickpocket oh uh, no the original from like 2005 or something or 2000 wasn't there one like the 80s Oceans, Oceans no, no there was another hold on Ocean's Oh, maybe the maybe the, it's like oh, it's probably honestly Ocean's. a remake of some sort. I'm talking about the one with um George Clooney and like. Brad oh Pitt, yeah, that Matt is the newer one. There's Don one that's newer. Oh wow. Okay. But yeah, like with those ones, it's like absolutely plot heavy. It's like just like this yeah. heist, and but it's, I mean, I it might be like a con, like a contested film about like if it's like really good or not. But I personally love. Ocean's Eleven and the way that like everything is so intricate with how the plan has to go and the way that it's like put together with uh with the uh the editing and yeah. everything. I don't remember who directed the film. I think it might be Danny Boyle, but I feel like that's wrong. Hold on. Ocean's Eleven. Oh no, Steven Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh. Okay. That's not who I expected. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, that's yeah, that's an that's an example that I got there for that plot versus um, versus character thing. I think a lot of the classic eighty movie eighties movies, and especially like the coming of age teen dramas, Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, all those kinds of stuff, work and have remained so well because it was the first time that I mentioned this a little bit previously, but. Um, the first time that characters that were not typically shown in film started having deep plot lines and actual character arcs. So I think there was just so much more that people could latch on to and so much more portrayed oh, yeah. in film. Like it, it kind of started kind of, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily started it in the eighties. I don't know that much about all the previous movies, but I think it kind of opened up the door to showing more of actual life and actual problems of the everyday people rather than kind of big cinematic issues or like you know things like breakfast at tiffany's that just were analysis of characters or character character analysis movies but don't really aren't super realistic and i know we're talking about ferris bueller and how unrealistic it is but like if going back to the coming of age films in the 80s and why they just remained so close to people's hearts is because of these characters that were unseen previously and you know the nerdy guy in class is now saving the day and getting the girl and I imagine a lot of a lot of people related to that way more than just the classic football and cheerleader trope absolutely if I'm, I'm trying to remember like my film history correctly I should because I just finished a class on that um, but like there's like in Hollywood there was this era of just a few years like it kind of depends on when you think it is it's like mid six mid 60s to like the early 70s where they called it like the american new wave or the hollywood new wave kind of like how there's like the french new wave and stuff but um with this one it's like all these young filmmakers coming into like the mainstream spaces like that included like steven spielberg francis ford coppola so they're like already bringing in completely new styles of like filmmaking. They're, well, those two examples specifically aren't necessarily like the more deep 
films per se. Well, I mean, they, they do like have a lot of emotional depth to them, but like those ones are like the more mainstream ones. But then in terms of like films that are like targeted at younger audiences, like most of John Hughes movies are, there's like the first one that I can think of is The Graduate uh, by Mike Nichols. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah, on the list. Oh yeah, it's it's great. And it's like, you literally get to see, oh, this is actually what life is like for somebody in like the recently graduate, well, the graduate, recent graduate of university and like the actual trials and tribulations of somebody going through the process of what's next. And so like, just thinking about that, it's like, that's how like storytelling should be for the most part. It's like, you're able to tell the reality of what things are. Yeah, there's, that's kind of just an example there. Like, I really want to do an episode entirely on The Graduate at some point. So if there's a future guest listening out there, we might force it on you. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's really cool, because like with that whole era, from the late 60s to the 80s, it's just a complete revamp of how stories can be told, and that's really cool to see. That's around when Ocean's Eleven came out. The yeah. original, nineteen sixty. Oh wow! Yeah. With like Frank Sinatra and uh, and whoa. Yeah, it has Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, other famous people at that time. The Rat Pack. Yeah. Oh, shit. What were you gonna say, Erica? Um, I just want to. I just like going off of what you said. I think a lot of this kind of wave to the more relatable movies and the ones that have lasted longer in pop culture is they became almost less cinematic less performative and more about mm-hmm. kind of relating to the average person and i'm sure you know here's my political science brain going off like probably about how as the middle class increased more disposable income so you're kind of catering to an audience a different audience with your widely produced films but as that happens, if you watch, you're more likely to watch a movie that really impacts you. You're more likely to show it to your children or rave to your friends about it. And there you get the '80s movies that, you know, everyone continues to watch to this day and continue to have a lasting cultural impact. Even though, if you think about Back to the Future, when it was when it was released, they were going back 30 years. If Ferris, Bu- or if, if uh, Back to the Future came out today and they went back 30 years, it would be 1991. That's a completely different era than the 50s would be. Oh my god. Right? Like... But but it's still relatable. Like, you still... It's like, the characters, like, teenagers still go through the same things. And it's... I mean, Back to the Future, it's somewhat, like, a spectacle film. Like, it is, like, still really interesting and like um, uh, has some like emotional hometown, depth to it it's like hometown sci-fi where it's not some egregious lab that's thousands of dollars with some you know quantum metaphysical universal computer it's like buddy guy's garage and your friends yeah. dealing with a hometown problem but insert some sci-fi yeah exactly yeah so and like I think, that one it's like oh go ahead i think part of the 80s and all, like, all these movies is that hollywood realized that teenagers are a massive market and if you cater movies to oh, them yeah. they're going to go out and buy it marvel movies for sure cough, cough. like now oh my god <laughs> yeah the um the actual like idea of a teenager never existed until like around the 40s like the social idea of like what a teenager is mm-hmm. if i'm if i'm remembering correctly i, I think it was like just post depression when like in terms of uh i guess you could say parents were like less strict and severe like allowing uh dates for example to actually happen outside of the family's living room yeah yeah like, like being able to drive where, to places like all of a sudden it was you had your own independence you could go get a job and it wasn't because your family was poor it was because you wanted money you had access exactly. to do things like there was a middle class there was a whole industry for disposable income that was entertainment so you could you know make disposable income go do that and your entire life especially for women wasn't just you you weren't you weren't perfecting yourself to find a future husband in order to create like the nuclear family 
you are you, it's actually a period of your life of self-discovery and like allowing yourself to develop uh relationships and figure things out it was kind of like a uh a, a ease off of what those years up to years of being a teenager was meant to be um so now creating there's a whole new market of things to talk about things to make movies about and people to sell to for sure and like when you think about it like if there wasn't that revolution of like teenagers coming into being teenagers and wanting that independence outside of like the family unit even for the briefest of times like the what and like one of the films that like initiated that was James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause had like that movie not happened had just the entire concept of this teenage rebellion occurred nothing in entertainment would have followed the same way we would have probably been stuck in the similar uh oh we just discovered sound for film that like era of like the, like the 30s like with like the huge split between um styles between the studios saying oh we have to just do these big budget adventure films or we're doing these melodramas we don't get to have to do we didn't get any uh actual like character um invested films that were just about the journey of this one person and like their emotional development through a certain situation we never would have gotten that and so it's showing it's off just, like our set production our costume design our exactly. our like dance and musical numbers but it would no have actual, just been that yeah like, yeah, like, like the movie, like for example, Singing in the Rain, it's riffing on Hollywood in that era. And it's basically poking fun at it while being, it's in, it, in itself, like an amazing movie. Like one of my favorite musicals of all time is Singing in the Rain. But like the, that whole movie is basically kind of satirizing that old Hollywood system of the spectacle that was film. And so it's completely different than like the 80s that like the era that we're talking about now it's just insane to think about like how in those that like small amount of decades there was such a huge change and it all happened pretty quickly to like lead to that development there's okay there's going back to Ferris Bueller for a second here there's one moment that I really appreciated uh I honestly don't even know if it was super noticeable but it like has to do with the music again just because because i've taken that like film music class that's like the one thing that my brain constantly goes towards with every movie i've seen since then um the moment when ferris's mom almost discovers the fact that like it's just a mannequin in his room and like she's walking up the stairs towards this mm -hmm. door there's like hints of like it's it's so 80s like this harpsichord like very subtle harpsichord i think it's a harpsichord though but it's like quintessential like 80s mm -hmm. horror yeah. music just played so quietly in the background it's like she's creeping in almost discovering that her son bamboozled her this whole time but it's all to the tune of this like harpsichord thing which like once again elevates like the unreal quality of this film and like basically like turning the mom into like some thing to be afraid of it's all just so yeah. playful like it's all just oh, it's sure. so much fun you can't just stop you can't stop smiling the whole movie Absolutely. let me just say too oh, uh cameron in that movie that man got no drip bro <laughs> <laughs> i know oh my god the chicago jersey is so ugly and doesn't he have like suspenders oh, too so bad at it's at the end yeah. of the suspenders, yeah. Wait, hold up. Was it? I think it was actually a Philadelphia Flyers jersey, which makes no sense. Oh wait, maybe I thought it was a hockey wrong. jersey. No, oh, and nothing. the and no. the hat. He's got like that old like Peaky Blinders cap on at one yeah. point. Yeah. Yep. It just it does not work. Oh man, it's oh yeah, but all of them. Why were they wearing hats like that? Like. All the hats that they had on were not the right move. Yeah, I don't know. You're Ferris Bueller. You just can pull anything off. Oh, that's true. That's true. Hold on. I'm just trying to... It's not the... 
Oh, it was the Detroit Red Wings. I said the Philadelphia Flyers. Okay. That's still weird, though. I don't know why they chose that. They're in Chicago. That Conspiracy theory. Show that Cameron oh doesn't actually know hockey teams, and he's just making it all up. <laughs> oh my god. Or he's, like, actually in Detroit, but he hates it there, so he imagined himself in Chicago. Oh, interesting. He's created yeah. this caricature of Ferris Bueller, who's a manifestation <laughs> of his desires to be cool and be, like, take advantage of life, and be easygoing and, and be in Chicago with this really pretty girl <laughs> and do just everything he wants to do that he would never have the courage to. So he's just created Ferris Bueller and this is this is what happens. Oh my god. Or maybe he just Whoa. liked the jersey and he bought it at one of the stores. Cause hey, I have <laughs> come on. I have this uh I have a I have like yeah. I have a fitted cap that I bought at the mall. And I didn't actually know what sports team it was until I got home and looked it up. I just liked it because it had a bird on it. Yeah, the Toronto yeah, Blue Jays. The, the, the Toronto Blue Jays. More realistic. <laughs> and okay, fine. Yes, maybe it was a Gordie Howe jersey that Cameron was wearing. Maybe he is one of the most popular hockey players of all time. But no, he just he made like, yeah, that's kind of a that's kind Chicago, of a stretch. Though did. I'm not sure about that. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa! Don't deny it. Come on. Come on. <laughs> watch Ferris Bueller and then call any of our theories a stretch. I don't think so. Also, can yeah, we talk how about how you? he wears how a belt you? and suspenders? Oh, no. Suspenders are to keep your Cameron. pants up, my dog. Why are you wearing a belt? Cameron. Oh, no. Belt. Oh, okay. This is just completely unimportant, but it's just something that I, I saw. The mom drives a wood-paneled station mm -hmm. wagon. That, that is my, this is gonna sound so stupid, that is my dream vehicle. Why? Like, I <laughs> That family wagon? <laughs> a wooden, a wooden-paneled station wagon. It's like also using like National Lampoon's vacation. Yeah. Just, I don't know why. So what you're saying, was like, so what you're saying is you wanna die in a car after a fender bender. <laughs> Because of the same um, emotions of that car. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly uh, what I want. Okay, cool. Just make sure. Man, <laughs> I don't know what. Like, like if I had the money, because I know that those ones are like so hard to maintain. Because like it's just like not it. If I had the money, completely like keep like the body of it, turn it into an electric vehicle. That'd be cool. Yeah. There you go. Sustainable shit, and it looks ugly as hell, but I love it no matter what. Rich and pretentious film director, you can absolutely do that. Mm. Help, yes. Well, I'll take out the pretentious part. Whoa, <laughs> come on. Like, I kind of feel attacked there for a second. Yeah. Hey, look, you can get one for $6,000. Oh, man. Oh, that, oh, that's... That, I don't know. That sounds Original kind of starting price. price. In 1951. Oh, jeez. <laughs> One of the, the funny things I was like wanting to say about uh, John Hughes as he was... This is like before he wrote it. This is like when he was in high school and stuff. I found this in this one article. No idea if it's accurate. Hope it is. I can like look it up later to back it up and like cut intercut like audio of me saying that I was like wrong <laughs> when I'm editing this episode. But uh, Google Translate. He was wrong. Like, what the artist... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, like, put in, like, a Google voice. I'll, like, leave a space yeah. right now to say if I'm wrong or not. Andre, you buffoon. You are only partially right. Many people believe that it was actually Hugh's friend Edward McNally that drew a lot of inspiration for Bueller. Close, but not quite right, Andre. You are still such a dope fellow and I want to be your friend. Please. Please be my friend, you are so cool. Okay, let's hope it says I'm right. Uh, so basically, John Hughes growing up, according to this article, was very close to Bueller and like constantly was like skipping stuff, not doing work. He didn't seem like a guy that would end up becoming this huge, famous uh, director for It'd all these like that. movies. But like looking at that, it's under if like John Hughes was essentially a less caricatured Bueller in his own high school experience. That makes him 
the best person to come up with this story and to come up with like all of the teen stories that he did with his films. That's like, the story he would have told people. This and he's like, nah, I don't really feel like telling that many but people. So let me make it into a movie. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly how I could see that. And so it's really cool to, to find that out and to kind of know that in context of this. And so it's even, so it's interesting that he's also like kind of highlighting Cameron in some regard as well, because it's, he wasn't the Cameron character, but you would have thought that if he made this film in high school, he yep. was Cameron, because that's why he would have wanted to make that story, but he wasn't. Unless I'm really wrong, and, and my intercredited audio said that I was wrong, but I'm just going to go off on the point that I'm right. <laughs> Andre, we've gone over this. You aren't exactly right. Makes so much sense. Like it's as we were talking about earlier. This is the uh, this is the unrealistic story that everyone wishes they could tell. And John Hughes is like, I'm going to do it in a movie. But yeah, like you'd think that it was Cameron that he was trying to portray, show that a character like that on screen, because you really don't get a character like that in any other movie that I've seen especially from that era but it's just it's just so great such classic John, John Hughes oh yeah that's for sure um yeah Erica you said you wanted to talk about the pool scene as well yeah the pool scene I think that's like the crux of Cameron's kind of character arc here where he's kind of in a catatonic state about what's happened and he's nervous mm-hmm. and he's terrified and, and then he just kind of leans forward and goes into the pool. And Ferris has to, this is a really good like metaphor for the whole movie, like physically drag him out of his yeah. of his state and out of his like catatonic state. And when he emerges, he just doesn't care anymore. And I think that's like a very, it's a significant moment for Cameron because he's realized like what you can, he's reflected on the whole day. And he, I think he's felt what it feels like to not, hate yourself and hate your life and he's like i don't want to do that anymore and that that seems a physical manifestation in that and we get that in showing ferris once again pulling him out of that and him finally kind of breathing again and having a new life back into him and i think that's really amazing that's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie and i think it's part of why it just makes it so much fun like i think it's why it makes it a a tolerable and such an iconic movie because Mm -hmm. without cameron Ferris is you you see Ferris as what his villains see him as as arrogant as cocky as lucky undeserving you know he's just feeding off of his middle class white male privilege he's doing whatever he wants without a care in the world you know if I saw Ferris in real life I'd probably hate him too but because Cameron is there and because Sloane is there lesser so we see that he's actually genuinely caring and doing this not only for himself, but because he wants his friend to experience this too. And we show that he's not just a shallow puck type character that only does things for entertainment and trickery and to kind of entertain himself, but he's genuinely seeking the experience of his youth and experiencing like the fun and living, the, getting the most out of every day. And he wants his friend Cameron to experience that too and he recognizes that Cameron is in a state where he's not going to be able to do that so he forces him into that and it ends up being an amazing day for Cameron's hence you know it being Cameron's day off more than Ferris's day off because Ferris can do this whenever he wants but I think Cameron being there really shows us that Ferris cares and that he's not just doing this because he can but because he he sees a greater purpose in living your life and having your youth and experiencing everything you can and that's why it's just such an amazing movie and why it's so enjoyable to watch and it makes you want to get up and go do something crazy. Um, so yeah, there's my there's my tied in a bow little knot about Cameron and Ferris and why I love this movie so much and will continue to watch it every year. <laughs> just want to do your, fi- your closing thoughts? Uh, honestly, I think that you've really just summed it up very well. One final thing that I kind of have to say in relation to that pool scene as well, Earlier, I've talked about The Graduate and how it was all about the true experience or the somewhat true experience of also middle class, upper middle class, white teenager that just is in this period of having to know what's next for them, being afraid of what the future is is like 
in store for them. They don't have a plan necessarily. There's the moment of Cameron just sitting at the bottom of the pool with just kind of looking around, just sitting there, potentially trying to drown himself. We're not too sure. There's a scene in The Graduate that is the exact same, or to some extent, it's the exact same shot. You see um, Dustin Hoffman's character, Benjamin, sitting at the bottom of a pool in a wetsuit and scuba gear. The context of the wetsuit and scuba gear is because like, he took a course on it or something like that, and his parents wanted him to show off to their rich friends how he knows how to like sit at the like dive into something for some reason it's very very odd scene but it's very interesting and you watch it in context of the rest of the movie but like you just see him just basically pushed down into the water by his parents like physically his dad takes like his hands on his mask and shoves him into the water almost like figuratively mm -hmm. drowning him in some regard and then you just see Ben sitting at the bottom of this pool in the scuba tank, depressed, he can't do anything really, he's just trapped there with his thoughts. And it, when I saw that clip in Ferris Bueller, it made me immediately think about that scene from The Graduate, and it's basically the same sentiment, but just askew in time, because Cameron isn't yet at that stage of having to decide what's next after university, but he's talking about what's next after high school. So it's still a similar thing, but like, mm -hmm. it's just so cool to see. Well, not cool because it's not a really easy topic. I meant to say it's like neat to see how similar ideas were portrayed so well in like decades apart. Oh, if you and if you want to have a revelation on your life, just go sit at the bottom of a pool for a while. Um, not over three minutes, though. <laughs> Unless, unless, you, unless you are Ben and you have scuba gear, then it's recommended. Ben. Final thoughts about this film. I just, I think it's just so aspirational in what all teenagers want, like, their life to be like, and what an ideal day of kind of going with the flow, carpe diem, mm -hmm. means. And obviously, we've been talking about this whole episode about how it's not possible and how it's un entirely unrealistic at its core. But I still think it's really aspirational and really fun to watch and imagine, like, what would your Ferris Bueller day look like? Yeah, that's definitely right. Because not necessarily all of our days would look the same, but they're yeah. still, like, looking at this and, like, just the joy that the characters have, it really feels universal to some extent. I think it's amazing that everyone has their Ferris Bueller day, but not everyone's Ferris Bueller day would be the same. That's that's the Andre? Jesus? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs>